Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schlong. It was one year ago when Matt Fiddler and I were the first journalists allowed into Lassen Volcanic National Park after the devastating Dixie Fire, one of the largest in California history. It was so awesome to find out that we both grew up going to the same campground, which is pretty amazing. Because right after the fire burned through here, we kind of made a pledge that we were going to come up here together. And I think I think we were expecting to see our campground pretty well gone. I, I was expecting that. So this has just, just been wonderful, wonderful to see. And the air, is, the air clean. is clean. And this is just, we have such a great view because we're looking across the lake. And I could really see what I've been told about the patchwork of fires. You know, there's, there's a grove of trees that I see. Uh, 50, 100 green trees, you know, so survived, surrounded then by, you know, 300 blackened trees. But there's all these little patches. And, and even in those burned places, those, those, will, those will become habitat for, you know, insects and pollinators and woodpeckers will come in there and nest and, and beetles will feast and that will be food for those birds. And so, you know, even the burned areas are going to be vibrant places of life in a shorter period of time than you might imagine. That was from one year ago when Matt Fiddler and I were up at Juniper Lake. And Matt joins me now as we're about to embark on a trip through the park and beyond one year later. Matt, welcome welcome back. Well, thanks. I can't wait for this trip. Um, just listening back, uh, does that clip uh, yeah, make you feel anything? Does it bring back yeah, any yeah, memories? Yeah, that was such a... That, that was such an amazing day because it was it was so stark and you know like a World War One battleground driving up to Juniper Lake and then when when we got there, the park itself looked you know pretty resilient and beautiful. So uh, I remember those feelings of like oh this is not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it really was quite a relief, and I think I could I, I could hear it in our voices. Um, that there was a sense of, of optimism and, and, and hope for this place. Now, are you ready to embark on a one-year-later adventure back into the park and beyond? I'm just curious if we're going to see much change from, from last year. Obviously, we're not going to see any smoking trees, but is life going to really be, have... Is it going to start coming back more than what I've seen just in the outskirts of, of Chester? Yeah, and one one year later, and of course, on top of this, we have this terrible drought. So that that is an additional layer of stress that uh, permeates this whole story. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm I'm curious in how that is going to affect uh, how the park looks as well. And what we're going to see, well, we will find out as we travel through Lassen Volcanic National Park and then up to the Hat Creek Radio Observatory operated by the SETI Institute to see what's going on there. Yep, it's a little windy, I'll see ya. A short drive up from the valley floor found us at Komyamani Visitor Center in the southwest corner of Lassen Volcanic National Park. Oh, good morning. How are you doing? Matt and I met up with the park superintendent, Jim Richardson, to talk about the fire and how the national park, which is becoming increasingly popular, has bounced back from last year's difficult summer. We talked outside by the amphitheater where rangers give evening programs. Good morning, Dave. It is an interesting time to mark, and of course, nature has uh, marked it well for us. We are seeing uh, both the 
the obvious remains of, of burnt trees and such, but we're seeing immediately how nature is responding, coming back uh, in its circle of life. Yeah, so much green in the burn areas where you just see these pockets of explosion of green growth. It really is different from when I was here last September right after the fire came through. It is different, um, and that is something you will see in uh, really any any fire area up in the, the the wooded mountains, especially up in the the pine areas. The fire, of course, burned uh, the duff layer off the uh, the ground and exposed some uh, areas that hadn't seen sunlight and nutrients in a while, and so you you get a response. Uh, from nature, uh, quite colorful, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, let's go back to a year, uh, as much as I hate to do that to you. Um, tell me about when When did you realize, As because the Dixie Fire started about this time, you know, like a week ago in July, um, and at this point it hadn't gotten to the park yet until early August, as I recall. At what point did you realize it's like, this is going to be a problem? So the Dixie Fire started about 35 miles uh, to the south of, of Lassen National Park. But I think it was day three or four, uh, we recognized that uh, with the, the fuels condition and the normal route of travel through this area in the mountains, which was a south to north relatively um, a direction of the large fires in our fire history, that there was actually a pretty good chance that it could go all those miles and, and reach the park. We uh, got together as a uh, park uh, management team and uh, with, uh, with our fire staff and basically started coming up with uh, some of those options that we, we could get ready to, to prepare for the fire that might be coming. And it, as I recall, a lot of work was done along the road, you know, to try to prepare before the fire got here. And that, that really paid off, didn't it? You know, a bunch of things, it turns out, that really paid off uh, for us in preparation. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, many years, actually a couple decades of preparation of uh, prescribed fires that we had done previously, and then fire uh, fuels removal around a number of our facilities. So we, we quickly kind of made a list of those and uh, decided which ones we might want to touch up uh, before a potential fire gets here and started working on those. When the fire did get here, and I remember you had to evacuate Mineral from park headquarters, as I recall, and set up a remote headquarters in Redding. Correct. Yes. Um, when you were in Reading, you know, away from it, that must have been, I don't know, emotionally difficult to be like wondering what's happening actually up here. How much information could you get down there about what was happening here? You know, it was 
really surprising to us how much great information that we were able to get. Uh, we got them from both uh, regular public sources that were uh, news sources, uh, even social media, but especially we got it from our uh, fire staff who were both in the field and the management team that was running the fire out of the Susanville area. Mm -hmm. um, they were able to give us good, good information. Uh, plus we had uh, National Park Service staff who were on the ground in the park giving us, especially me, daily uh, briefing updates and helping helping me make decisions uh, as as this fire progressed throughout the throughout the park do you, do you remember any particular decisions you had to make that were you know difficult ones i i do the 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 fire was uh progressing uh through the park and it looked like it was going to make it to the park highway so we decided that the park highway would be a major fire line that there was a good chance that we could hold the fire at the park highway. That doesn't actually put it out, but that confines the fire and lets, lets the firefighters uh, work in the field. Yeah, and you, as I recall being one of the first people into the park um, last year, uh, I think I was the first journalist allowed in, it really it was very stark to see that like this was this is it the park highway was where it was it was basically stopped all that work you could see that it really did pay off we did really do quite a bit of work right along the park highway we had uh, uh, expert sawyers uh, drop several hazard trees to make that fire line uh, defensible and we had all of these uh, huge equipment, huge masticators came mm -hmm. in. At one point, I think we had 21 uh, huge masticators working yeah. off the park highway. They had these long arms and swirling heads that just chew up the smaller trees uh, alongside the, the edge of the highway. We did that on both sides of the highway to give the firefighters that defensible space to work and in some cases uh, actually burn off of, off of the park highway. I'm just kind of curious, uh, what's the difference between uh, the fire behavior hitting like trees that are masticated, and so it's still fire fuel on the ground, right? Compared to hitting trees that are still standing. There is a huge difference in the, the fire behavior. Uh, we get really moderate uh, or, or really light fire behavior when when the fire would reach uh, a, a masticated area or an area that uh, the ground fuels uh, had been cleared, uh, small brush and grass and such. So that is a, a technique that's uh, been used by firefighters for many years and uh, was shown to be successful again here. Does it have to do with there's just less oxygen because all the fuel is down at the ground, so there's less air? I guess I'm just wondering, why does it not burn as intensely if it's ground up and on the ground? That's true. Um, in an area in particular, the masticators will turn whole trees, smaller trees, but whole trees into chips. And yes, the, the fire will still go through those and carry through those, but it's, it's much slower. 
and and there's yes less less air in between and so you get a breeze on that it doesn't affect it so much okay so as we as we look at what happened afterwards or during, you know what could have happened it's my understanding that because of the efforts that the park made here in the southwest area where you can see you know the park road and on the uh east side you know on mount connard it's you know it burned hot and fast and then on on the side the other the opposite side it's green and beautiful and um, I've been told by several people that it was really that that firing that saved Mineral, Mill Creek. And then you also have the same thing over on the other side of the park here where the reading fire scar also slowed the fire down and the fire lines you'd built using the park highway that kept the fire from getting into old stations. So really benefited a lot of the communities around here too. Those are, those are really good observations. So when we used the, the park highway as a fire line, we didn't know exactly um, how the, the fire would reach, reach the park at, at this location. What did happen in between is we actually had a lightning storm that came through. That's right. And there was a, a lightning strike fire that occurred uh, actually on both sides of Highway 89. We were able to get the, the fire put out that was on the west side, but the east side uh, kept burning and uh, kept growing and in fact um, would burn hot and start rolling down down the hillside. And so that uh, made us do our firing operation uh, earlier than we would have liked to do. Uh, we, we still had to pay attention to the weather and we get great weather forecasts uh, every day to help us make decisions. And then literally on the day of, uh, it's the, the weather on the ground, in this case, the wind conditions. And the wind was uh, just right uh, on, on a certain day. And we, we fired off of the park road. And so that's where, where exactly was the fire? Where did it start? Did it start here at the visitor center? And it, it did, in fact. We, we started at the visitor center that we had uh, previously pre-cleared around. And then we worked uh, south along Highway 89 and, and fired uh, uh, clear down to Highway 36. And that boundary was able to be held. Uh, that piece of the fire line essentially kept the fire from spreading to the west uh, and uh, kept it away from the towns of Mill Creek and Mineral. Um, it's, it's essentially, it saved Mineral and Mill Creek. Okay, let's talk about now. You've got your summer tourist season and people are here visiting the park. What are, what are some of the reactions you and your staff are hearing from visitors as they come in, you know, perhaps never been here before or longtime visitors? What, what kind of reactions are you getting to the park being reopened? You know, so many of the, the public are interested to see what, what happened dur during the fire. Um, we get reactions uh, both in person and uh, now social media, we can actually then read those quite a bit. Um, there's, there's a profound sense of loss uh, to, to many of the public, but there is also that, 
uh, realization and that happiness that uh, nature will will come back and is coming back. They can actually see it. And just a year later, um, it, it is already starting to come back. And, and of course, lots of the park was untouched by the fire as well. It, it was. Um, and those choices are um, shown on our website. So you can go to our park website and find find what areas were not burned at all. And you can uh, experience those if the black trees <laughs> bother you, uh, that that you can go in, into the areas that were completely unburned. And you still are not fully open as far as all of the campgrounds and facilities. What are some of the places that aren't open yet, but maybe open before the end of the summer? Uh, most of the facilities opened either on time or just a week or so late. But there were some areas that uh, haven't opened yet at all uh, due to hazardous conditions or work where we are doing that. So uh, first of all, right adjacent to the visitor center where we're, we're standing right now, we had, uh, a, oh, about 80 trees that are in falling range of, of our campground here. So that campground is not yet open. Um, in fact, that campground was in rehab uh, at the time that the Dixie Fire came through. So it's really not even safe yet to get our, our maintenance staff back in there to do that rehab work in the campground. So once we get those trees down, uh, we can get that, that campground working again and hopefully get it finished uh, and open back to the public. Then in the Warner Valley, um, the area that many people know as Drakesbad, uh, Drakesbad Guest Ranch, historic guest ranch, wonderful place. Uh, we did have uh, some structure loss there. We lost uh, three visitor cabins and also our uh, water tank and our water treatment plant uh, that, that treats the water were also lost in the fire. But most of the facilities uh, are still there, um, particularly the big- the historic buildings. The historic buildings, yes. It's a historic, his, historic guest ranch. So that area has been uh, cleaned up, but it, the construction, the reconstruction of those cabins and water facilities has not yet begun. So those are longer term, uh, uh, projects that need, uh, we, we got the funding for those, but we got to go through all the approvals to yeah. to get those to, to rebuild. And then what about Juniper Lake? I saw the park, the Juniper Lake Road is open, but not the campground yet. Uh, yes, uh, Juniper Lake was the first area where that the Dixie Fire blew into at pretty high intensity. And we were able to open that area to day use uh, just this last week. And the campground uh, didn't really have uh, very much loss in it, but there, there are still a few uh, trees that we had to take care of. Um, we'll finish those up sometime in this week and be able to uh, open even the campground uh, to the public. So the, there, that's actually a great example where the fire swept through the campground, but because we had done some, lots of actually good uh, fire fuels work, uh, 
the fire just singed a bunch of uh, pine needles and uh, it burned a couple trees, but uh, then it kept going. And so the campground uh, is in good shape. It's still a shade, still gonna be a, a really pleasant place to camp. Because of the work that was done and the, the fire, the lightning fire, and you, you doing the firing operation, Mineral and Mill Creek are safe. Another interesting story that not many people really are aware of is that as the fire got into the reading fire from 2012, that burn scar, and I remember uh, Ranger Kevin Sweeney and I looking at that where you could see that it's like, well, the fire got here, but there was it was really starved of fuels because of, you know fire had already swept through there not long ago. That that really all of that work and what happened there, that that saved those communities that are in the Hat Creek Valley, like Old Station. It turned out that the 2012 Reading Fire was actually a saving grace here. It uh, eliminated so much of the fuel in that area that in particular, it, it gave firefighters north of the park, outside of the park, almost a month to prepare uh, the, for the fire that was inevitably going to uh, leave the park to the north. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it, it eventually continued to the north, uh, northeast, uh, but it was able to be held on the fire lines that the firefighters had prepared and essentially ran through the backyards, just, just outside of the backyards, really, of the entire town of Old Station. And that actually saved the town of Old Station. And the Hat Creek Radio Observatory, you know, I know they were also very worried for a time about, you know, the fire getting to them. Uh, they sure were. Um, what we found last year in the Dixie Fire, that the Dixie Fire was primarily a connectivity of fuels uh, driven fire. Um, it, it was pulsed by occasional uh, wind events mm -hmm. that, that, that took it uh, Accelerated in, it. in, in chunks uh, ahead. But um, it essentially just continued to to munch through the, the forest lands and uh, because all the, the, the fire fuels were so dry and pretty much continuous through many places. So any little spark that moved ahead of the fire, um, it would ignite as well. So it was that, that fuels connectivity and that, that drought condition of the fuels that, that allowed it to just continue and was really difficult to stop. So Jim, you know, what's the big takeaway from this, the Dixie Fire story that you want the public to understand? I just want the, the public to know that uh, fire is, is something, it's a part of nature. It's a natural process. We are going to have to learn to live uh, in the fire environment. And, and Lassen is a great example that then the, the issues kind of the, that you feel are the destruction of a fire uh, can be really minimized with good planning and good work in advance. And then let fire do what it is going to do. And do what uh, it has done for thousands and thousands of years. For, for forever and will continue in the future. And with, with climate change, it is uh, very likely that our fires will 
continue to be more, to happen more often and to be bigger fires uh, that will consume more vegetation throughout our, our natural environment. Hopefully it's not so much of our built environment, our, our homes and businesses, but uh, to burn in within nature is, is part of the, the natural system. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our visit to Lassen Volcanic National Park and the Hat Creek Radio Observatory one year after the Dixie Fire. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's continue now as we travel through Lassen Volcanic National Park one year after the Dixie Fire. Before leaving the visitor center, we talked to a park visitor named Bridget from Montana, who was obviously quite taken with Lassen Volcanic National Park. I live in Corum, Montana, northwest Montana, about eight miles south of Glacier National Park. This is your first visit to Lassen Volcanic it National is. Park. What are your impressions? Oh, I love it. It has a small park feel to it, but it's not small. And hardly any people up here. I'm just amazed by the middle of July. And the campground was wonderful where we were. Where are you staying? Um, the south... God, you're asking me questions I can't answer south you. Summit Lake. At a la- yes, that's it. South Summit Lake. Yep. The only issue I had was that the space to park our motorcycles was like this. And that wasn't good. But anyway, no, it was a wonderful little campground. I really enjoyed it. I'll have Jim get down there and level it for you. Well, there's, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or just don't rent those to motorcycle riders, but you don't know. We're we're here doing a story after one year after the Dixie Fire, which, of course, you can see the... um, the evidence from and just wondering what your impressions are of you know seeing that aspect we were going to ride the bikes over here last summer and then the fires started and there was no way we were going to come over here at that time and the friend of mine that i'm with she's been to this park a couple of times and she was explaining to me that that all that burnt area was the dixie fire and i guess it came down into the campground we were at too and just within 20 feet of where we were they did a wonderful job containing it but it's just massive you can't you don't know you hear it on the news and you read it in the paper but you don't know till you see it yeah, it's just it, amazing and you realize how big an area burned just amazing oh yeah and i like this what are those sulfur pots what are the the guy the mud things that are up on the hill in, uh, just right around the corner yeah yeah this the the sulfur works up that there this was so neat yeah. that was mud, so neat pots and oh yeah and i like the way you guys have the little reader boards everywhere because it was the only way i was going to figure out what what was going on and what happened but yellowstone west right here <laughs> yeah but i've been to yellowstone i like this place better i really do yeah yeah this is a sweet place it's homey feeling it's has a small feel to it but it's not small and you see so many things on the drive through it's amazing we also stopped at sulfur works one of the park's many geothermal systems and checked out its bubbling mud pots and fumaroles It sits right next to the park road, so it's easily accessible. Traveling up Highway 89, the park road, I was struck by some of the subtle differences I saw from when I was here a year ago. 
On our way up the park road towards Lassen Peak, evidence of the burn scars was mostly to our right and south. But on the other side of the road, the park looked pretty much typical for summer with one exception. It was much drier than I have ever seen before. Evidence of the terrible and continuing drought that is pummeling the west. Passing by Lake Helen at the base of 10,457-foot Lassen Peak, the bathtub ring around the azure blue lake showed that like every other body of freshwater in the state, the water level was noticeably lower. That's important because the Lake Helen Basin is where snowfall is typically greatest in the entire state, feeding the aquifers that filter down into the Sacramento Valley and, importantly for me, recharge our well water. After passing over the summit, we saw more and more evidence of the Dixie Fire burn scar in the eastern parts of the park. After a brief but lovely lunch at Kings Creek picnic area, Matt and I stopped at the devastated area where we happened upon my good friend Ranger Amanda Sweeney. She's giving a geology talk to a group of visitors, including a family, who had to change their vacation plans from Yellowstone to Lassen after the devastating floods there this summer. Her husband Kevin, also a ranger, was our guide when Matt and I visited the park last year. After her ranger talk about the 1915 eruptions of Lassen Peak, we asked Amanda about how the summer season was going and her very personal experiences with the Dixie Fire, which came very close to the Sweeney's home in Lake Almanor. We were actually just at Summit Lake Campground as well, taking some video of visitors enjoying that campground after the Dixie Fire, which did burn right around the campground, but mostly really only affected the edges of a couple of sites. Uh, so I was actually trying to get some good uh, video of the, both the effects and visitor use, but they, are, they blend in so much now. We have the trees that were not affected by the fire are bright green again, and the understory is really coming up. Um, in fact, there's these purple flowers that I need to go back and identify the species. We have not seen nearly the amounts of that flower uh, previously in the park, but somehow it might be the nitrogen from the fire and certainly some rains we had this spring that are really fueling a little bit of extra wildflower growth. So yes, but one year later after the fire, we're really starting to see the, the regeneration uh, of, of nature, you know, reclaiming what happened in the fire and, and, and the, the good effects that the fire has, like you said, releasing nitrogen, getting those wildflowers going. It's, uh, it's all part of that ongoing cycle. Yes. So next question for you. You, you, you work here. This is your life revolves around the park, but you're also a resident of the Lake Almanor area. And, and I know the fire came very close to your house. And, you know, tell us a bit about what it was like to be, you know, that aspect of it as, as you, you know, you wear your ranger hat and this is where you work, but this is also was your home. Talk about that a little bit about what that was like last summer. Yes, I, I feel I personally am still in recovery after the Dixie Fire. I, I've, I have worked on fires and have been around fire before, but never had it come so close to me personally. It did indeed burn right up to the back of our property line, and we are certain that our home remains standing for because of active firefighting. So we had structure engines in our neighborhood, even parked in our driveway on a couple of days. Um, so we're lucky to have our home, and I'm enjoying uh, that great gratefulness that has yet to, to fade, um, as is everyone, you know, being able to enjoy the park um, with the fire management actions that took place. 
But I would say, you know, I was evacuated for a month with my two young children, and my husband also works for the park. So we did, you know, some balancing act, trying to help support the fire efforts in the park and kind of maintain our own lives. And our landscape has changed a lot in Chester. I mean, the, we have a lot of high severity areas and the timber value is high in those. A lot of it's private property. So rightfully so, the companies are trying to log as much of it as they can, but it's very quick and sudden um, and just something we're not used to seeing that much logging every day, you know, you're driving behind logging trucks. So we're, I'm glad that they can salvage as much as they can, but it is co continually a changing landscape that's pretty hard to adjust to. And the, the Warner Valley and Juniper Lake areas of the park also had some high severity areas, but driving into those areas with the logging that's going on, every time you go, it's a whole new landscape. and. The positive is that you see some volcanic features that you never saw before. These lava ridges, cliffs that used to be blocked by trees. So, you know, the, the challenge of adjusting to having a little bit less forest for the time being is, is balanced out a little bit by getting to see some features that people haven't seen for a while, at least before people started suppressing fires. Um, last question for you, like, as you interact with visitors, um, there's, I'm sure there's quite a mix of people here for the very first time. Maybe people that planned to come last summer couldn't, and this summer they did come. And long-time visitors, do you, are you noticing any kind of different reaction from the long-time visitors who've been coming here for years from the people that are new and their reaction to the Dixie Fire? I think actually what surprises me is that we have not had as much comments about the Dixie Fire as we expected. Uh, the southwest area near the Komiumani Visitor Center, for sure people come into the Visitor Center and ask questions, both returning visitors and new visitors. Returning visitors, I think, tend to ask more informed questions like, how long will this forest take to recover? Where, you know, your first time visitor just wants to know what happened. Um, so I, I suppose as we talked about with the regrowth and regeneration, it's kind of already starting to blend in a little bit. So we don't necessarily see new visitors asking about it as much as we expected. I, I was surprised, so with uh, national parks, you know, the Dixie Fire is a large fire, but it's one of many sort of incidents that we are seeing with climate change, and Yellowstone landslides are one of the newest, and as you'd mentioned earlier, I was just speaking with a family that all had Yellowstone shirts on, you know, eight kids and parents, um, and I asked them, did you come from Yellowstone? And they said, no, the plan was to go, and things changed with the lands, landslides. We had to be flexible, so we came out to Lassen, and the mother at least had been here before, but you know they were excited to introduce their children to this place and recognizing that it was affected by fire, but every national park right now, um, all of our public lands are being affected by some sort of impact from climate change. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, Matt Fiddler and I are going to leave Lassen Park and head north to the SETI Institute's Hat Creek Radio Observatory, home of the Allen Telescope Array, one of the most sophisticated radio telescope systems in the world, and one of the only ones dedicated primarily to the search for extraterrestrial civilizations. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot's trip through Lassen Volcanic National Park and beyond, one year after the Dixie Fire.
Welcome back to our Blue Dot special as producer Matt Fiddler and I revisit Lassen Volcanic National Park, one year after the enormous Dixie Fire which burned nearly a million acres of Northern California forest lands. Matt and I continued our journey through the park, exiting at Manzanita Lake before heading north to the Hat Creek Radio Observatory. Operated by the SETI Institute, the historic observatory was built in the late 1950s by the University of California in Hat Creek Valley atop ancient lava flows and surrounded by volcanic mountains that shield it from outside radio interference. When we arrived there, we had to turn our devices off, or put them in airplane mode, if you will, to keep them from disturbing the sensitive observations going on there. We were met by the SETI Institute's Alexander Pollock and Sarah Schultz, who proved to be delightful tour guides. I'm Alexander Pollack. I'm the Science and Engineering Manager for the Head Creek Radio Observatory. My name is Sarah Schultz, and I am the Research Assistant for Alexander Pollack at the Hat Creek Radio Observatory. Cool. Alex and Sarah spent a couple of hours showing us around, and inevitably, the topic of the Dixie Fire came up. I asked Sarah what it was like to be here a year ago. I think for a while, we were kind of just like a little unaware of how bad it was, and then like the smoke got pretty bad, and then we saw it was like coming our way, and once once it, we started saw it coming our way, and especially like creeping into the national park, um, I was checking on it like every day. I yeah, did the same. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I I started um, following the Lassen like Modoc units like YouTube channel. They would have updates. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do like a community meeting every day. I think Alex went to a community meeting, and we were actually um, we're partially in National Forest, and the part that we're in right now is National Forest. So a lot of our buildings are in National Forest land, and. Our agreement with them is we, we can't touch their plants. So we asked very nicely if they could come and give us a defensible space, which they yeah, did. Radio yeah, and our, our residences. Is and a lot of residences on National Forest? Yeah, National they are. Okay. Um, did you ever have to evacuate? Or we were did, close. You, you did not have to, though. No, we, we, we had a warning. Yeah, we did not have to. Um, we got to the point where we decided when it got very close to get, the, let's say, the non-essential personnel like students um, and people who can work remotely with a laptop um, to have them kind of pre-evacuate and kind of work from from home or from somewhere else so that we have only minimal stuff on site. And then we worked out... Um, uh, a plan of if we have to evacuate, in what state do we leave the observatory? How? What do we do with the antennas? What do we do with the signal processing room? What happens if we can't come in for a kind of certain amount of time? While the fire was definitely a dramatic event for the observatory staff last year, the fascinating work that they do here, astrophysical research, and of course, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, other civilizations that may be out there in the stars, is the observatory's reason for existence. I asked Sarah how they go about connecting with visitors who generally come with a very vague sense of what the amazing technology there is being used for. Of course, the famous 1997 film Contact with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey is a good gateway to that discussion. If you want to know what we do, the first half of Contact is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's a great um, answer. Thank you. <laughs> the, the only thing that that I would like subtract from from it is in the beginning you see um, 
yeah, she she's listening on a set of headphones, and th that is not accurate. We do not do that. Um, so all of our data is comes into our computer room and gets run through a pipeline, which is basically the computer doing the quote-unquote listening, and then um, we look at the data on waterfall plots, which is just frequency versus time. So we're not actually listening, and I think listening would be a lot harder than graphing. <laughs> so, but yeah, first half of contact is pretty good. <laughs> um, I think yeah, the main thing is, especially if you work on SETI research, it's much better nowadays where kind of it's considered kind of a real science and we're kind of doing like general astronomy research, we're doing kind of the SETI research on a science basis, so we really want to find evidence. And it's a lot of technology involved, so there's like a lot of the things where it's like um, we had someone coming, some visitors on site, and we explained them what we do and then they looked at me and said like and you're actually getting paid for doing that in a way of like what what is the real world application why are you doing that what is the use out of it and i think it's a kind of um one of the things very clearly from my point is technology so all of the technology which we develop will end up in your cell phone so we're pretty much 15 years 10 to 15 years ahead on the hardware which we use until it's um basically finds an application on the consumer market. So there's a lot of technology development going on. And then also the kind of the privilege as kind of a society to ask those questions and to look at, um, are we alone or is there anything else out? Having that possibility kind of learning and kind of brightening our horizon is I think very important as a society. It, yeah, so the sound here might be kind of a bit louder background. That is the, um, our AC for the signal processing room, so... We, we open a, a set of, of doors to where this technology is working. Huge racks of computers interpreting the data coming in from the radio telescopes. The hum of the computers is impressive, and especially during the heat of summer, those computers have to be kept cool. So there's, yeah, it's in the summer the best room to be in because it's always nice and cool. So here it's basically the part where the signals of the antennas come in. So we have 42 pairs of fiber, and that's basically all of the analog signal coming in from the array. And that's the handoff point into the signal processing room. And on here is our control and timing. So that is the control and timing rack. And um, we have one computer, that one controls all of the antennas which you see out there. If you have to change frequency, what we observe, so all of that is controlled by that computer. The way astronomy works is, um, the way you figure out where you point is time-based, because everything moves, so you need a global reference, and your global reference is time. So for us, we need a very accurate clock, and that is what we call our station clock. It's an oven-controlled oscillator, which is disciplined via the GPS signal. So GPS provides long-term stability, and then for the short-term stability, it's a very um, precise oscillator, which doesn't jitter. Oh, it's like kind of a nanosecond, picosecond range of the jitter. So it's, um, yeah, it's very, very tiny. So it's kind of, the higher you go in frequency, the more accurate clock do you need, and the further your antennas are away and you have to combine the signals the more accurate they need to be. And so that's the point where kind of signal comes in and it's kind of then all of the control signals and then we go to the other side. And that is our main digital signal processing backend, those five modules, and they digitize the 20 antennas with two tunings. 
every second 110 gigabytes of data just out of those five modules. And the plan is to have 17 more which we install. So each of them has two 100 gigabit ethernet, two RTX 3090 GPUs from NVIDIA, so the best one you can get, the biggest GPUs, and then we stream the data in and they're then analyzed in real time. So if you do observations, like SETI observations or other observations, you can't keep the raw data. So you have to kind of process it in real time and then reduce the data rate. And then you can save it and store it. And it's basically what happens in here. Through another set of doors is the astronomers and engineers workspace, basically an office where staff keep everything operating while keeping an eye on the incoming data flow. So that's um, the observing room where kind of we have um, Pranov, so he's um, observing right now. So one of the things here, which is nice to see, so that shows the real-time live data of the antennas. Um, so each of those um, yeah, images is one antenna with both polarization, and that is our band pass, so that's what we receive. And we are at higher frequency right now, which looks super clean, so interference would look like spikes. You would see kind of spikes in there. And the frequencies we are observing, you can see basically here um, what frequencies we're looking at. So with our beamformer, or kind of the correlator running right now, we look at um, about 8 gigahertz and 9 gigahertz frequencies, and the RFI scan is about at a gigahertz right now. Alex, Sarah, Matt, and I walk outside amongst the large radio telescopes with Lassen Peak off in the distance. We're walking to their workshop, where the new receiver technology is being built and implemented. It's been over a decade since I've been here, and Alexander explains how much the 42-dish array has been upgraded with new technology recently. So the short answer is there's a lot going on now, um, especially this year after we have the array up and running. So it took us about three years to go from whatever the hibernation state or whatever the old state was to get it to a state where it's functional and it's kind of, you can just um, go on the sky within kind of a snip and we are observing. And so that's what's happening right now. So I'm not sure if you can see a lot of those antennas which are all pointing. So they're turning. turning. So they're either kind of parking right now, um, depending on how the script is set up. Ideally, we would like to use all 42 together, but um, we have about um, 24 antennas right um, operational right now. And so those 24 antennas consist of 19 of the so-called um, antennas which have Antonio feeds in them. So that's the newest kind of retrofit receiver and it's the most sensitive one. And now currently we're building six more receivers. So ideally in a couple of months we have 30 antennas operational. That's our feed lab where we um, retrofit and build the receivers or the Antonio feeds. Rather than sending them down to the Bay Area, we basically do all of the work now in-house here. The lab is a small building with a little area surrounded by plastic sheeting to keep down the dust. Alexander immediately takes us to the newly redesigned receiver, which doesn't look like a normal antenna feed with geometrical fractals like the pyramid design traditionally used. Instead, it looks more like a flower with rounded nubs resembling a clover, and that's a key innovation. It allows a much larger range of frequencies to be observed than ever before, and could potentially be the key to finally detecting an extraterrestrial civilization's signature in the radio spectrum.
It also looks very impressive. It's very impressive. And it has this kind of clover, the clover leaf design or so. I feel like I kind of see it from the front. And I had a student designing it, and so he needed it for he needed it for his PhD thesis. And I told him kind of if he can design it that it's small enough to fit into the existing receiver, into the existing glass dome, um, and if he designs it to match the antenna optics, I'm happy to put it on an antenna, do real observations with it, and then he can publish it. Ooh. Because it's one thing on kind of building it in, uh, building it, testing it in a lab environment, and but saying having it make an observation. Exactly. And. Yeah. Is that going to happen soon? Or? So we've done it. So it, it was um, part of the 20 antennas which were doing observations for the last, um, I think, two or three months. And I just took it out on Thursday. And do you have a sense of how it's performed? Um, it's performed better than the pyramid. So it's um, more sensitive. Um, and it also doesn't have one of those drawbacks of the pyramid that um, depending on what frequency range you observe, you have to move the entire feed back and forward into the focus point of the antenna. And the focus point of that feed horn stays the same, so you don't have to move the antenna and you can observe at all of the frequencies at the same time. Whereas with the pyramid, you actually have to move it roughly to the focus point, what frequencies you So there's observe. no, you don't have to tune this one kind of. Exactly, that? yeah. I just, I'm wondering in the back of your mind, it's like it's such an interesting field of research. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you were to make a discovery up here, and this is one of the places on Earth where it would happen if it happens or when it happens, yeah. that, that must be always kind of an interesting thing to be in the back of your mind thinking about, you know, what you're doing here. Yeah, I think in, in general, kind of astronomy is one of those workplaces or kind of fields, let's say work fields, which puts things into perspective. Um, it shows kind of yeah, how how is it how small we are how much is out there in general kind of just our small Earth compared to the vastness of the universe and yeah if we find something or kind of when we find something I like the the, the when um, much better I think the impact would be yeah very kind of yeah very big yeah we're looking so I know it's. If you don't look, you don't find anything, but we're kind of... Yes, and when, I, when I see this and what's going on here, it's like this whole upgrade in the capabilities of the observatory. It's very exciting. As we finish our tour of the Hat Creek Radio Observatory, we asked Alex about his perspective on why the effort to search for life beyond Earth, specifically intelligent life, using this incredible technology, is important and meaningful. If we believe if we're alone or not, and I feel like it's so in humanity's history, it's like we always thought we are the center of everything. If we thought Earth is flat, we are kind of at the center. We are the center of the solar system, then we are the center of the Milky Way, then we are the center of the universe, and it just turns out we're there. there's nothing kind of special where we're in the center about it. Carl called them the great demotions. Okay. Thanks again to all of our guests, Lassen Volcanic National Park Superintendent Jim Richardson, Ranger Amanda Sweeney, and our wonderful guides to the Hat Creek Radio Observatory's Allen Telescope Array, the SETI Institute's Alexander Pollock and Sarah Schultz, and also our special guest, Bridget from Montana. You can learn more about Lassen Park at nps.gov lavo. And you can learn more about the SETI Institute's Allen Telescope Array at Hat Creek at seti.org. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schlom, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.